morning, a great big congratulations. I mean, mark your woohoo, somebody. All right, hey, mark your calendars because today we finish the Book of Romans. You excited about that? Okay, so let me just ask, you know, not to be, not to embarrass anybody, but if you've pretty much been here for the duration from the very beginning of Romans to the end, how many of you are like that? Bunch of folks, I know, because you come here faithfully. Man, God bless you guys, seriously, for your faithfulness, and I mean, it has been off and on. We, there's times we've taken off, but 18 months. We started a couple of Januaries ago, and here we are, 16 chapters, uh, verse by verse, all the way through the book, amazing truths that we've seen, and uh, what, a great, what a great thing that it's been for us. In fact, as we're going to enter into this final lesson, obviously take your Bibles, Romans 16, we're in the last half of that, we're going to wrap it up, starting in verse 17. Um, I want to just remind you of something as we're kind of leading into this subject, and it's this, you know, when Jesus Christ gave his physical life to die on the cross and to shed his blood, he did so so that he could save us from our sins and from hell, but he also did it so that he would place us into one body, the body of Christ, and he did that so that we might enjoy peace and harmony and Christian unity. And friends, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you currently are the possessors of Christian unity today. And I put in your notes, unity truly is a beautiful thing. It's mentioned in Psalm 133, the entire psalm only has three verses, where God says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God looks at it as such a beautiful and wonderful thing. He says this is really a great thing, a pleasant thing. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. We're not studying that today, but the idea of Aaron the high priest and the anointing that came over him and the breastplate that represented all 12 tribes and literally the, 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 the anointing and blessing that covered the totality of God's people at that time being the nation of Israel, that's a comparison and an illustration. Another one in verse 3, as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, just refreshing, morning, cool, the dew that comes upon Mount Zion. For there in Zion, the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And God planned this life that we would be able to all, if we would receive Christ as our Savior, live not only eternally with Him, but to live together with him. And this life in Christ now is practice. We practice learning to live together with one another. And if that's the case, we have to ask the question, why is it then that we don't always live in this peaceful, harmonized unity, that we don't enjoy the love and the happiness all the time? I mean, why does it seem that it always takes so much effort to protect the unity in the family of God. Paul alludes to it in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3 where he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, it means you have to work at it. And you work to not establish unity or create it, you work just to keep it. It exists already and it wants to run from you. And so you have to work to preserve or to keep the unity in the family of God. And if you've been with us in this study, like most of you have, ever since we turned the corner from the heavy doctrine in the first 11 chapters, starting in chapter number 12, all the way through to the end, 
there has been this undercurrent theme of togetherness and peace and unity in the body as we've dealt with the practical applications in the book of Romans. And that's been God's goal for our life all along. But we have to understand that we do have an enemy in this Christian life. And it's not one another. Amen? I mean, I feel like we should get a big amen on that. It's not one another. You're not my enemy. I'm not your enemy. We're on the same team. This is really important. We have the only enemy that is the declared enemy of God. That's the devil. That's Satan. And he works through two specific ways in, this, in, in our lives, and that is through this world system, which is evil and causes us to want to just think of ourselves, and our flesh, our fleshly desires, which is evil and causes us to think only of ourselves and not of others. And so in order to preserve unity in the family of God, we have to constantly battle these forces, maybe more than any, our own flesh, our selfish desires, in order to consider others before ourselves. And that's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, first four verses. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You see the, the unifying factor there? Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That strife and vain glory would be promoting yourself over others. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so the title I've given today's message is The Importance of Preserving Unity. And we're going to focus mostly on verses 17 to 20 in Romans 16. There are a few verses after that. We'll just kind of wrap up with those at the end. But I want us to really look at Romans 16, 17 to 20. So just follow along. I'm going to read. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray quickly and we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we look at this section of Scripture and as we wrap up this book of Romans, I, I do pray that you would help us to see life as you see it. I do pray that you would help us to learn to love you enough and to love one another enough to be able to say no to things that might come and try and divide us. Lord, there's no question, we desperately need you. But the truth is, we desperately need one another as well. So I pray that you would teach us to preserve the unity that exists in the Lord Jesus Christ and in your body, the church. We look forward to what you'll teach us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so before we jump into Romans chapter 16, I want to start with the first point of your outline, which I'm calling the illustration of a flock. And we're going to see some verses out of John chapter 10, and we're going to look at a couple of things. But I just kind of want to kick this off with an illustration, because this is an illustration that Jesus uses a lot, and it's used throughout the Scripture to describe the family of God, like sheep and together as a flock. And John chapter 10, arguably, is the greatest chapter in all the Scripture, which compares believers to sheep, right? And Jesus, ultimately, is the great shepherd. I'm going to take a few of the verses, starting in verse 14. 
Jesus speaking, saying, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So again, Jesus is using this analogy and illustration, and clearly the idea is we're all going to be in this together. The original fold of sheep would have been the nation of Israel. The other sheep that are not of this fold will be the Gentile nations. And we are all going to be one. We're going to be one fold. And we're going to have one shepherd. We're going to have unity among the believers. Skip down to verse 26. And he just kind of gives some definition to these things in this illustration. He says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. So sheep are believers, by definition. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, biblically the illustration is given that you are like sheep. God, you need to understand, He is the creator of all life. God is the one who made all of the animals. He's the one that gave them their instincts and their behavioral patterns. And He is the only one who is capable through his word, of then giving the exact comparisons from the physical creation to our spiritual lives in human life. And so in order to illustrate what he intends for us as his children, apparently he wants us to learn a little bit of lessons from sheep and from flocks and from shepherds in order to understand what he wants for us. And so literally and briefly, we're just going to talk a little bit about the characteristics of sheep. Now, there's a lot of things that you can read, and there's a lot of good books out there, but I just want to give you one specific thing, because sheep are primarily known for following. I mean, they're not really known to be trailblazers. They kind of just stay in a pack and in a flock, and they, and they kind of follow what everyone else will do. And sometimes we give sheep um, the, the identity that they're not real bright, because they just do whatever the guy in front of them does. But actually, there's something I want to read to you, and it's an article that comes from a British national daily newspaper called the Daily Mail. You guys pick up a copy when you're there. How about that? Okay, so it says this. Here's one of the studies that they did. Sheep do not behave like sheep in the way that most people imagine, research suggests. When they follow the flock, they're not so much copying each other as acting on their own out of a sense of survival, London researchers found. Scientists strapped GPS satellite tracking devices to the backs of animals being rounded up by a sheepdog. They confirmed that the sheep's herding behavior was governed by an individual drive to escape danger. A sheep at the center of a herd is less likely to be eaten by a predator than one on the outside. With sheep, the researchers were able to use a farmer's dog as a prospective predator. The findings, published in the journal uh, Current Biology, suggest that individual sheep under threat continuously move toward the center of the flock the flock as a whole, meanwhile, moves away from the threat. It's kind of continuously folding in on itself, said Dr. King. So among the various instinctive behaviors of sheep is this tendency for preservation. It's this idea that, is, is that each individual, although we are in it together, uh, we work together by choosing to survive more effectively by living in community. You might say that they're a tight-knit group. 
You'll get that. There are dangers. The dangers are predators. Okay, so in real life, there may be several natural predators for sheep, okay, coyote, bears, mountain lions, eagles, foxes, but most commonly, we refer to the wolf, okay? And, and wolves, like sheep, you can study their characteristic behaviors and their instinctive ways of living and surviving, and what you'll find is, is that wolves typically hunt at dusk or at night, They seek the weaker livestock of a herd or a flock. They use stealth and attempts to remain hidden until they're ready to attack. And a wolf will have the strategy, divide and conquer. In other words, what they want to do is they want to get the one weak sheep away from the flock and they'll go after that one. This is an accurate picture of our dilemma as Christian believers. Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Okay, so we understand a little bit of the characteristics of sheep. We understand a little bit about the dangers of the predator, especially the wolf. So let's talk a little bit about the protection. And really this deals with some leadership. Typically, a shepherd is the one who is given to lead and protect the flock. Paul said in Acts 20, 29, after my departing, Paul, the shepherd of the flock at Ephesus for a time, after I depart, okay, now you're going to have trouble. The wolves are going to enter in, and they're going to not spare the flock. There is something about having an outside protector that helps. And so a shepherd typically, physically, historically, walks with the sheep. He knows the sheep. He leads them to food and to water. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Often he will sit high on a hillside with the sheep below in the field grazing and he will watch over the sheep from a distance so that he can see from a better perspective the predators that might be coming in and he can protect the flock. That's an important job that the shepherd takes on. He may employ sheepdogs to help herd the flock and Although the sheep may be afraid of the dog, the shepherd is guiding the dog for the good of the sheep. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16 to his disciples, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Not a lot different from what we read in Romans 16 and verse 19. So as spiritual sheep, as Christian believers in the Lord Jesus Christ... Living in a world filled with spiritual wolves, those who would seek to divide the flock, devour the flock, we need to be alert. We need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to be on guard at all times. And that is the illustration that will help us better understand, I think, Romans 16. So let's, let's look back at Romans chapter 16. And what we're going to see here and do a little bit more study is the New Testament church doctrine. The New Testament church doctrine. We started with just an illustration, and we're going to go into some doctrine directly out of the text and to see some specific things that Paul teaches us concerning this subject. And so I get it. I put them in a little different order. We're starting with dangers instead of characteristics. We're going to get to all three. But I wanted to start with dangers first. Okay, and the first danger, we say, what are the dangers? I mean, how, do, how does this operate? 
Well, the first thing you're going to see is causing division. That's what we see in the text. Causing division and offenses, it says. Okay, so that the safety and the well-being of the sheep or the flock as a body together is put in danger whenever somebody enters in and attempts to divide us. It's a serious matter to God. In fact, it's such a serious matter that he teaches us in this passage as well as others what to watch for and how to respond. Listen, this theme of unity is all through the Bible. And again, especially in this whole last practical section of the book of Romans, when he wraps up the book, the last bit of teaching that he gives us in this entire doctrinal treatise of Romans, guard the unity. Stay together. Don't let anybody divide you. It's that important. It's interesting when we look at some of the characteristics of the dangers and how the divisions come about, we're going to see that personally these that might cause division, they may appear to serve God, but actually they don't. Verse number 18 says, For they that are such that might cause the division serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. They serve themselves. They serve their own fleshly desires. Jesus had a very similar thing to say in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. He said, Beware of false prophets, which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. So here we have people who will actually be wolves on the inside, but they will appear to be Christian believers. They may be in our very midst, and they will ultimately be able to be known by their fruit, by their behavior. Do they have any real Christian fruit that lasts in their life? And if not, they just appear to be something that they actually are not. Just like it says in Romans 16, that they don't actually serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Paul have to make that distinction if there wasn't some appearance that maybe they would serve the Lord Jesus Christ? He says they're not really serving the Lord Jesus Christ because that would drive them to that Philippians 2 principle, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. But these serve their own belly, their own selfish desires, the, own, the things that they want more than anything, me first and you later. And he says we can know who they are by looking at the fruit. So they don't really serve God, but they appear to. And also we need to be aware of the fact that they can appear attacking from without the body or they can rise up from within the body. We'll go back to Acts 20. We saw verse 29. It says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. So the shepherd is going to step out and the wolves from outside are going to come in. He goes on in verse 30 and it says, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So the church at Ephesus had a body. They had unity. They had a togetherness. They were growing. They were, they were doing well. Paul says, I have to leave. You have to beware that some may come in from outside and try and attack you and to do things that will divide you. And some may rise up in pride, serving their own belly from within you. And what are they going to do? They are going to draw away unto themselves. In other words, divide out from the unity some disciples after themselves. Dividing the flock. This is a serious 
serious offense in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. This greatest doctrinal New Testament book ends with the admonition, watch out for these guys. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. How can I identify who these wolves really are? Well, it's not all that hard. He tells us directly in verse number 17, first off, they have bad doctrine. They have bad doctrine. It says in verse 17, it says they have division, they cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. That could be the totality of the truth of the scripture that you've learned in your life, but even if we limit it solely to all of the things that we've learned in the first 15 chapters of this book, which is the backbone of church-age doctrine, if somebody comes and tries to teach to you something contrary than what you have already learned in the last 18 months, you better be careful. That You ought to put up a red flag on that. You ought to be aware of the fact that, hey, wait a minute. How can I identify who, if this person is really a sheep or if they're really a wolf? And I'm not saying that we leave here and everybody looks over your shoulder and judging everybody else. These things become apparent. Do people just pop up and whisper in your ear and try and teach you things other than what you already know to be true with the purpose of dividing you away from the unity that is First Baptist Church? Those are the people you have to watch out for. That's how we can know who they are. Okay, so they have bad doctrine. But you know what they have also? They have a good presentation. They have bad doctrine, but they're smooth talkers, right? It says, by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. So these are guys that are convincing. They're smooth. They're positive, encouraging, but they're false. They're inaccurate. It says they deceive. To deceive in the vernacular means they're liars. They tell you what you want to hear, maybe, but it's not the truth. You have to watch out for people who have bad doctrine and present it really well. That's why it's really important that you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is the only protection you really have. Listen, there is a huge difference between somebody who is very gifted in their oral presentation and very smooth and very likable and tells a lie than in somebody else who is in old world Baptist church culture, we would say good old hard, strong preaching. Somebody who'll just tell you like it is, put it over the plate waist high and say, there it is, you deal with it. Truth is truth, and if I'm loving you enough to give it to you. People don't like that kind of stuff anymore. People are slowly but surely wandering away from churches that just give you the truth straight to try and help you. They say, well, that wasn't very loving. Oh, really, is it more loving if I just lie to you? Is it more loving if I let you slip off into eternity and meet Jesus Christ with your whole life based on falsehood? Is that better? Is that the way you want to live your life? I think it's not the loving thing to do, and certainly it's not the characteristic that we see in Scripture. In fact, if we want to look a little bit at Paul's admonitions and and personal behavior as it has to do with his personal verbal communication skills, okay, 
One of the things we see in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 8, uh, Paul encourages Titus, and he says that in verse number 8, that he should have sound speech that cannot be condemned. In other words, when Titus speaks, Paul says, you need to speak soundly, that it can't be refuted, it can't be condemned. What you say must be accurate, it must be right. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, what we're going to find out is that sound speech is not necessarily fair speech, right? In other words, truthful speech is not necessarily always pleasing to the ear, right? Look, Paul had a way about him that might not have made him your favorite next-door neighbor, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 6, Paul says, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, he says, look, you might not like the way I talk, but you know that what I'm saying is right. You may say that my presentation is rough, but let me tell you something. It's not rough in knowledge. I'm giving you the goods. I'm giving you the accurate thing. I heard a preacher say one time that, He said, look, everybody's got their different styles, and I'm not saying that you should have a license to be rude. He said, but I learned a long time ago that if a man's hungry and you give him something to eat, he's going to eat. He said, and you know what? If a guy's not hungry, I don't care how you garnish the plate and make it all real beautiful. If he's not hungry, he's not going to eat it. So this guy said, you know, I just learned a long time ago. I'm just going to slab off a chunk of meat and just throw it out there and say, have at it if you want it. I don't really care. Okay, well, whatever the case, you pick your style. The point is this. I'm just, I got to give you the truth. That's my, that's my requirement. And Paul says, look, I, I'm not the smoothest talker you've ever met. But I'm giving you the truth. I'm giving you the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he, he refers to the way he speaks again. Because obviously people didn't love it. For his letters, they say, he's quoting others referring to him, are weighty and powerful. He, he writes well. But his bodily presence is weak. He was probably a little, you know, a little guy. And his speech, contemptible. I mean, when you write, you sound so authoritative. When you write, you sound so powerful. But we look at you and you're kind of a pipsqueak and you, and you kind of make me mad. Somehow or another, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that qualifies as sound speech not fair speech not ear tickling speech another place in titus chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 so paul's talking and he quotes he says and one of themselves even a prophet of their own said and he quotes the cretians are always liars evil beasts slow bellies okay so he's quoting another guy then he adds his commentary in verse 13 This witness is true. (laughs) And he calls guys out for being liars and evil and selfish. He calls them out and he lets them know why. Because you need to know that these dangers exist among you. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's sound speech. To keep you sound in your faith. You say, well, I don't know if I like the sound of that. Well, they didn't really like the sound of it either. You say, well, maybe Paul was a little carnal. 
Well, Paul admitted to being carnal sometimes, but the stuff he wrote that's in the Bible is inspired. You say, well, I prefer the example of Jesus. Well, I do too. Well, let's see what he said. Let's do that. John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus Christ is dealing with wolves in sheep's clothing. Back in that day, they were referred to most commonly as Pharisees, religious leaders that on the outside looked one way, but on the inside were an entirely different way, very evil, God-rejectors. So Jesus talks to these guys in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Here's the sweet, smooth speech of our loving Savior. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Do you realize what he's saying to these group of men that are around? I mean, Jesus is just going to, he's going to persuade them to change their ways. I mean, he gets before these guys, and he's like, you're just like your daddy, and he's the devil, and he's a murderer, and he's a liar, and that means you're just like him too. You're all a bunch of murderers, and you're all a bunch of liars. You're all devilish. That's how Christ dealt with wolves in sheep's clothing. That's why you rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You need to understand that this is a serious matter. The eternal God of the universe came to earth in the form of a human being, never sinned, and spoke that way. Read Matthew 23 sometime and see how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. I mean, go there and actually read the whole chapter. I'm giving you verse 13 where he just says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, liars, fakes. Literally, the word hypocrite is like that of a stage actor. You put on a costume and you behave a certain way in character, but in reality, you're an entirely different person. You're a hypocrite. And he repeats this over and over and over and over throughout Matthew 23. And for time's sake, I just listed for you some of the subjects that he deals with as he is rebuking these wolves in sheep's clothing. He says, you guys not only aren't getting saved, you hinder other people from getting saved. He said you steal from women. You say fake prayers so that you can look godly. You turn people into devils. You make them worse children of hell than you yourselves. You think you're leading people? He said you're blind guides to others. He said they're like whited sepulchers, that, that they look pretty on the outside with a nice, clean, you know, whitewashed paint, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. In other words, you are dead and filthy on the inside. I don't care how you look on the outside. And by the end of the thing, he calls them all a generation of vipers, which is basically saying you're a snake and your daddy's a snake and your granddaddy's a snake. That's what he said to them. That's how he dealt with them. That doesn't sound a lot like good words and fair speeches. That's sound speech. That's promoting sound doctrine. We face these dangers. Listen, you need to look for, you need to listen to people who will give you sound speech. And how can you know that? Well, you better understand the scriptures and compare it and make sure that you know what you're hearing is accurate. 
right? It's not necessarily always fair. It's not necessarily always good. So we face these dangers. How should we instinctively react? The sheep have an instinct. That's why I wanted to put characteristics second. How should we instinctively react? Well, there's two characteristics described in this passage to preserve the unity in the body of Christ. The first, it says, mark them that cause division. Mark them. Whenever you see people smooth talking to divide the flock, make a note of who they are. Mark it down. Watch them. That's what he says. Let me just say something. As one of several shepherds of this flock in this church, if it happens, it happens. If it happens that you run into such people, if it happens that you run into people who, through murmuring and complaining, and, and, and they come up and they will tickle your ear with certain thoughts and, and conversations that will ultimately lead to draw you away from the unity that exists in this body, if, if you run into that problem, you, I just want you to know, you can always come to us We can help you. You can tell us about the situation and hopefully together we can work to resolve it. That's our desire. Okay, but please understand, the Bible says specifically, if people are rising up in division, mark them. And it goes on and it says, avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. Now, what you'll find in the scripture, again, it doesn't say beat them up. It doesn't say, you know, give them a tongue lashing. It, it says, realize who they are and get out of there. Don't waste a minute of your time allowing them to continue in your presence. Leave them. That's the smart thing. What do the sheep do? This ever-enfolding of the sheep always working to the middle and the outside always working to the middle. Slowly, the whole group moves away from the danger. That's how God designed it. That's the instinctive behavior of sheep. That's our, God then makes the comparison to believers. How then are we to behave? Exactly like God made physical sheep to behave. That's how we are to behave. You, mark, you find out who they are and you avoid them. Now there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about avoiding. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. Very similar passage. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, mark him, and have no company with him, avoid him, that he may be ashamed. Now just think about this for a second with me. This is rarely carried out effectively in church today. And the main reason is this. People today are so enthralled by the gossip of somebody else. That when somebody begins to rise up and they have, ooh, I have inside information. What happens is, rather than obeying the scriptures of marking them and avoiding them and having no company with them, they'll entertain it. They'll listen. They'll consider whether or not, hey, maybe that's true. And what happens is, rather than the end result being, if every single faithful believer... Let's pick on Jeff here for a second. Let's pretend he's the the guy and he's going to try and cause division. If every one of us avoid Jeff 
And he, he goes around to a bunch of people, and everybody's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And, a li- and little by little, the whole flock just moves away. Well, before you know it, he's got nobody to listen. He's got no friends. He's all alone. And God uses it that he would ultimately be ashamed of himself. Not you, really. It's for the record. If somebody, that, that's how it's supposed to work. But rather, a guy rises up in rebellion and division and starts to gossip here and there, and people are like, hey, that's very interesting. And one or two of us might say, I'm not having anything to do with it. The Bible says I don't want to hear it. You know, the talebearer, the gossip, I can't even listen to it. I'm going the other way. He'll go find somebody else. What happens is that guy finds, he finds, eventually he's going to find some refuge. He's going to find some friends. He's going to, because people don't all, as a body, obey what God says, there really is no rejection. There really is no alone. There really is no ashamed. If we don't all do what God says what we're supposed to do. So there's a lot of reasons why God gives to avoid or withdraw from certain people. And I gave you a list. The first one is just sinful people. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13 gives us a list. And the list is just all kind of various sinful behavior. A fornicator, covetous, idolater, a railer. That's somebody who says bad things about other people. A drunkard, an extortioner. See, we are to put away from ourselves such people. If we find people who are in habitual, sinful behavior, outwardly doing what they do, he says, put them out. Don't have anything to do with those guys. Avoid those guys. Gossips, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with the lips. Oh, you mean like fair speeches, fair words, good words and fair speeches? Is that what you're talking about? He flatters with the lips. He's a talebearer. He's a gossip. Don't meddle with those guys. Don't have anything to do with them. Proverbs chapter 1, 15 and, th- and verse 19, talking about people who are greedy. Verse 15 kind of starts the context. Walk not thou in the way with them. And it lists some things. It goes down to verse 19. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain. Well, now we're getting a little closer to home. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the covetous thing that we saw in 1 Corinthians 5? In other words, there's a lot of things that God says, look, this is going to mess you up. If you meddle with greed, if you meddle with evil speech of division, if you meddle with people who are habitually sinful, if you meddle with gossips, if you deal with those people eventually it's going to poison your heart. Eventually it's going to cause division in the unity and the beauty of the peace and harmony of the body of Christ. Don't do it. Titus 3, 9 through 11, people who are argumentative. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. I mean, these are people who might want to argue Bible verses with you. Again, there's a time to have accurate Bible study, but sometimes people just want to be contentious. They just want to strive. Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, the servant of the Lord must not strive. That's what he says. You find people like that, it says that they're unprofitable in vain. And then it says a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Now typically when we think of heretics, we always say, 
well, that guy teaches false doctrine. He's from a cult. He's from a false religion. He's a heretic. He teaches things that aren't true. Well, that's partially true of the meaning of the word heretic. That's more of the methodology. The real meaning of the word heretic is simply one who causes division. Heresy literally is a division. It's a separation. That's literally what the word means. And so a heretic is one who comes in and is a divider of people, usually based on the things that they say and teach to be true. Again, Romans 16 context, on point. So you can give a guy an admonition, hey, you better not do that. And you can give him a second admonition, hey, you better not do that. But after that, reject him. Well, where's the love? Well, let God deal with the love. He's got plenty. Let God deal with the love. You protect the unity. You protect the unity. It's that important. Yeah, it's based on false teaching, but he's a divider. And so all of these things in this list, these are all things that are contrary to sound doctrine, and they all serve to divide the flock. So what about the protection? Well, similar to the physical analogy, the flock is protected by shepherds, right? Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5, first four verses. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Literally that word that says, feed the flock, Feed, that verb, feed, literally is the same root word as the word pastor or shepherd. That's exactly what the word means. Shepherd the flock of God. Feed the flock of God. What does that entail? Taking the oversight thereof, watching over, helping out. So the pastors of any church serve as shepherds, certainly under the guidance of, of the, the chief shepherd, the one who sits sitting high on a hill, overseeing the whole terrain, and with a command can order, actually it might be better to say that we are sheepdog, <laughs> sheepdogs. He commands the dogs, that's us I guess, go do this and round up the sheep. He's sitting high on the hill at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly Zion. And he's watching over the sheep. And he commands the under-shepherds, the servants, the, the shepherds of the flock locally, to do this. This is our job. It's a portion of what we're supposed to do. So elders or shepherds, they're to oversee, feed, protect, lead, in order to preserve biblical unity. That's what it's all about. Well, what are the rest of you to do? I mean, if you're not a shepherd... If you're not an elder, what are you supposed to do? Well, it goes on in verse number 5 of 1 Peter. And it says, likewise, ye younger. Well, if you're not elder, you're younger. Submit yourselves to the elder. It's just that easy. Either come alongside and pull with us and serve to be a shepherd of the flock. And if you're not ready for that, that's wonderful. That's fine. Then do your part. Submit to the leadership. That's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 is the exact same idea written in Hebrews. Uh, Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, 
For they, the shepherds, watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. So like a shepherd or a sheepdog, you could call it. Okay, so we're supposed to watch for you. We're on guard for you. We're here to help you under the guidance of the chief shepherd. And the idea is, is that the flock will stick together and collectively move away from the danger. And in this case, the danger comes from people that would endanger our unity with false doctrine well presented. So the way to preserve our God-given unity is to reject divisive influences. Do you see that? So if we don't stand on unity and endeavor to keep it, it will naturally slip away from us. It will naturally slip away from us. I don't know a better way. It would be ridiculous for me to think as though I could come up with a better way of finishing the book of Romans. After all of the totality of things that we've learned, to end it by saying, work really hard at keeping all this together. Keep it all together. Let's just look back for a second, just a very quick review of what we've seen in the book of Romans. So it started out with an introduction in the first chapter and kind of set the stage, and, and we gave an overall theme of this book by saying that Romans is the message and the mandate of God's righteousness. Righteousness is the theme throughout. So it's not just the message of salvation, although that's prominent. It's this mandate. Paul presents it not just as a theologian, but as a practitioner. He presents it as a missionary, as one who's taking the gospel to other people. And so the first three chapters basically deal with the downward spiral of sin. And then chapters 4 and 5 primarily deal with salvation, justification by faith alone. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with sanctification, walking in the power of the Spirit. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, we talked about sovereignty, and really we focused on Israel, and we saw Israel's salvation, and we dealt with those issues of calling and predestination. And we saw that there's a lot of false teaching coming out of the mouths of smooth talkers, but we saw the biblical teaching as clear as it possibly could be. And lastly, from chapters 12 to 15, our service and all the practical applications of how that plays out, which really have the undercurrent of unity and doing it together. And then in chapter 16, we had all the greetings and the warnings, which we dealt with the first part last week. So after 18 months of study in this book, you should be better prepared to not just understand, but to go and to do the things God has called us to do, to live like a servant of God, right from the very first chapter and first verse, separated unto the gospel. That our lives are not just now more intelligent, but that we're more practical and faithful and obedient. That's what we have studied over the last 18 months. Let me, we took a second to look back. Let me just take a second and look forward. And, and let me just give you a little taster of what's coming up for the rest of the summer because we have, we have done a great job going through this book. And so for the rest of the summer, we're going to take some topics. And we're not going to just jump into another book. But the summer preaching series, that will be nine weeks long, we're going to call Seasons. And, and the idea is that we're going to deal with different seasons of life. And so for nine weeks, you're going to hear these subjects dealt with so that in each week, a particular stage of life or season of life is dealt with with their unique challenges and the strategies and biblical answers to how we might deal with 
what is facing us. So we're going to start next week with students. And then we're going to talk about kids who go away to college and the unique challenges that they face first time out of the house. Then we're just going to talk about young adults in general, that whether they're single or whether they're newly married, they're, they're young adults. Uh, eventually then we're going to talk about older singles or people who are single again. Uh, we'll talk about marriages. We'll talk about uh, husband and wife relations. We'll talk about people who are married who don't yet have kids and how they can respond to the Lord and, and maximize their time. We'll talk about parenting young children, of course. We're going to talk about parenting the transitions of life. And some of you have kids at different ages and stages, that those are real challenges, and you need to kind of know what to do with those things. We're going to talk about those of you, and I'm fast approaching becoming myself an empty nester. Okay, your kids are grown and out of the house, and, and what do we do next? And, and we'll talk also about grandparents, and what does God have to say about your role and the, the lives of your children and your grandchildren and society in general. These are really important things. And what you're going to hear for nine weeks, you're going to hear from seven different individuals that have unique and specific experience and understanding in these areas. So it's really going to be a great summer. I really hope that you come and you learn a lot through the things that we're going to have starting next week. Okay, look back in Romans with me, and we're just going to kind of read the last couple of verses and we're done. Again, verses 21 to 24, what we have are more greetings. We kind of covered that in detail last week. I'm not really going to go through the list of greetings through verse 24, but verse 25 to 27 is what some people might call uh, a, like, a, like a doxology or a, a benediction, something at the end. He just kind of wraps it up with this thought. So if you just put your Bibles down, why don't you stand with me? I'm going to read this, and we're going to pray together, okay? So let me just, just close your eyes, bow your heads, listen to the last three verses of this book as a prayer. I'll continue to pray after that. Verse 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And Heavenly Father, as we come before you, God, we are so, so eternally thankful for all of the things that you've taught us. And I am so thankful for this last message that the capstone of it all comes down to now that we've learned so much, now that we have put things in place, we have to beware of people that would cause division and offenses contrary to the sound doctrine that you've given us, that we would mark them and that we would avoid them, not so that we could be exclusive, not so that we could have a small club of people that would say, tick-tock, the game's locked, but rather that we would be unified and that we would be spirit-filled, and together with purity and peace and joy, we would reach out to these others and help all the more people know you. Lord, make us all not just understanding of your truth, but practitioners of your truth, that the truth of the book of Romans would be lived out in our lives. And I pray if there's anybody here who has not yet fully understood that they themselves have eternal life, today can be the day. They surrender their hearts to you. They beg you for forgiveness of sins. They invite you to come into their hearts and their lives and that they ask you to be their personal Lord and Savior. I pray that they would do that. For the most of us, Lord, we've already done that. And we just need to maybe re-surrender to you 
our lives in service. We love you, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.